In the middle of the 18th century, in the middle of the Seven Years' War, in the middle of that part of the Seven Years' War known as the Third Silesian War, there is a 24-hour period in which, uh, by the actions and activities and words of the King Frederick the Great of Prussia, I think we're given an absolutely breathtaking picture of the power of the incarnation and the power of the inhabitation, Jesus' spirit living within us. So I know that this is a pretty obscure reference to give you, but what you have here are the armies of Austria up against the much smaller army of Frederick the Great, Frederick II of Prussia. And during this sort of foggy, snowy night before the battle, a scene plays out, and it's best written by the historian Robert Asprey, that I just want to read to you, give a little bit more context, and then I want you to hear about what happens after the battle, and then we're going to tie it all into the absolute grandeur of Jesus. So this is Robert Asprey from his book on the life of Frederick the Great. And this is, again, the night before the Battle of Luthen. While others slept, the king walked snow-dusted ground from company to company, from campfire to campfire. Orderlies carried casks of wine and baskets of bread and meat, and by the campfires he ate and drank with his soldiers, listened to their tales, heard their complaints, It was drunken talk in part, certainly coarse talk, often humorous, decidedly human. He was a soldier among soldiers. That was part of the kindling process. His real secret was to challenge individual courage. The enemy is over there to the east. He is two or three times stronger than we are. But we are going to attack him. We are going to beat him. Is this not so? Do you have that image in your mind of this all-powerful king sitting amongst his men at campfire and challenging each individual heart to go and to do it? Well, the next morning, very early, the Austrians are ready. It's foggy. They have an expectation of where Frederick will attack, and he does not at all what they expect. In fact, he comes at an oblique angle to the opposite flank than they had expected him and begins to rout them. And it's a a horrible, bloody, awful battle all throughout parts of that day. And then night comes kind of early, snow starts to fall again. And then again, I want you to listen, so picturesque, again from the historian Asprey. But Frederick is not finished. He rides the line to ask whether anyone will follow him to seize the Lisa bridges. Exhausted troops cannot believe what they hear. They are sprawled on the frozen earth, bleeding from wounds. They are thirsty. They want food, fire, and sleep. Who is this man on horseback? Well, maybe he too is thirsty and hungry, tired and cold. So far he knows what he is doing. It must be important now. So a few men reason, not many, but a few. They struggle to their feet. A few more rise and pick up their heavy muskets. The remnants of three battalions will go with the king. 
It is 6 p.m. and snowing. It could be a funeral procession, and in some ways it is. A groom holding a lantern walks by the king's horse. Infantry follow with a few small cannon. Some cuirassiers join. The curious procession trudges across snow-swept ground, the men singing an old Lutheran hymn, Nun danke alle Gott. The rest of the army hears it. It passes from regiment to regiment, becoming a mighty chorale as the king's singers approach Lisa, brush musket fire off with cannon, move into and through the town to seize the important bridges. The king puts pickets east of the bridges. They and the artillery are to fire spasmodically the night through to refresh the enemy's panic. Isn't that a scene? Can't you see the all-powerful again, Frederick, the night before, sitting quietly with his men by campfire, pushing their hearts in the direction of, we can do this. And then the next day, when they have done it, when they're exhausted, when the idea of chasing the enemy further seems just too far to go, the presence yet again of Frederick on horseback, calling them up and out of themselves, out of their weariness, into something higher, bigger, and stronger, gets them on their feet. And did you catch that? Nundanke Yalegat, we thank thee all our God, we thank we all our God, is the song they begin to sing, and it passes regiment to regiment as they move in gratitude to God, but really in the spirit of this king, out and against these enemies. It's very picturesque. It's, I think, very beautiful. But that's the flesh. That's the way of the world. That's battle according to the ways of man. I read that book a few years ago, and it has stuck in the back of my brain as this beautiful image ever since. But just this morning, I thought of it. I read it again, and I started to think about the incarnation. And again, the inhabitation. And you know me, I love a good rewrite of some good writing. So I took Asprey's words... And I turned them into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to read that to you. Perhaps if you're able to, just close your eyes and be with me in the imagery of what Jesus has done and is doing today. Listen. While the world was going about its regular business, the king of heaven walked the earth from town to town, village to village. His very life was the arrival of the new wine, and his body and blood were the meal men might eat and live forever. Along the way, he ate and drank with us, listened to our stories, heard our complaints, watched the ways superstition and religion blocked our understanding. Ours was a muddied view of life, often coarse, sometimes humorous, always fundamentally fleshly. He, for a time, was just a man among men. This was part of the brilliance of the invasion of the kingdom of heaven. His truest secret was the invasion of the heart of the individual. I am right here among you, he would say. I will always be amongst you, wherever two or three are gathered. Now, I am going to attack and defeat Satan. He will be totally disarmed by my cross. Have I not said it is so? 
Yet even after the cross, Jesus is not finished. His spirit stalks the church to ask whether anyone will follow him, not only for their own salvation, but for the salvation of the whole world. Busy, exhausted Christians sometimes miss what he is asking. They are going about their lives, struggling with challenges. They are tired. They want provision, comfort, and assurance of salvation. Who is this Holy Spirit calling with the alive voice of Jesus? Well, maybe he too is hungry and thirsty to see righteousness within us. Perhaps his leading is into something better than life itself. So far, Jesus has known what he was doing. This must be important now. So, a few men and women think to themselves. Not many, but a few. They rise to their feet. They raise up their hearts and minds. Then a few more rise too and pick up their cross. An inner core of the body will go with the king. It is 2021, and much of the world is chaos. Their march could be like a funeral procession, but in reality, it's a triumph. The Spirit holds forth a lantern before the goings forth of the King. We, men and women of His, follow closely. We carry the only weapon needful in our midst, the Word of God. The love of Christ compels us. Our curious procession walks across the sin-swept earth, men and women singing with whole heart the worship of our King. The rest of the church, the world around us, hears it. The name Jesus passes from heart to heart, becoming a mighty chorale as we approach toward heaven. Heaven itself begins to lean closer. We brush aside all manner of worry, danger, and anxiety as we move in and through each day, unconquerable. The King, by His Spirit, places us where He needs us. We, all these brothers and sisters, mutually allied with each other in the Lord Jesus, we will continue the work until He calls us home. Thanks for listening.